I do wonder if it was a bad idea to pick a name for a language that I can hardly even pronounce myself. (laughs) You're listening to Marianne Writes a Programming Language. And I'm Marianne. Back when I started this series... Thurston Ball made a comment that stuck with me. Is there something that you would really like to see people like add to Monkey that uh, hasn't happened yet? I I would be interested to see like a really well thought out module system. And I thought to myself, what? Is that hard? Oh crap. That's probably hard, isn't it? And I feel like that is, I don't even know what that means, you know? Oh, yeah. It sounds like this is going to be really hard, isn't it? So I added this to my research list. Figure out modular systems. And I surfed over to my favorite community for programming language design advice, r slash programming languages. This subreddit is full of great stories, and people will give detailed explanations and encouragement, which feels rare on the internet these days. While reading through the conversations on R slash programming languages, I came across this blog post on the official site for this niche functional programming language called Futhark. Futhark is an experimental programming language for high-performance computing run by the University of Copenhagen. Because of that, their blog is full of interesting design discussions, including a post entitled Design Decisions I Do Not Regret, which, among other things, goes into the design of Futhark's modular system. So I asked the author of this post, Tolls Hendrickson, to come and chat with me about why he created a programming language and how he thinks about these decisions. And I think one of the um, problems was that when you're a bank, every day you must you must figure out how much money you have. Hmm. And in a modern bank, it's not just about counting how much money you have in your vault. It's about counting how much your various contracts and options and derivatives are worth. And yeah. often there's there's no easy answer to that, that because that's actually a probability distribution. Because if you have a, an, an option that allows you in two weeks to buy some stock at some price, then the value of that option depends on what that stock may be worth in two weeks. Yeah. And, and that's and you have to, to figure that out. You basically have to do a Monte Carlo simulation to figure out, to, to, to look at what that, the various ways the stock market can go and then take the average or, or something. I don't fully understand all the mathematics behind it. But the <laughs> ultimate, yeah, and it's... Imagine, imagine if you had to do that whenever you looked at a, at a bank note. But it, that means that when you want to, to price options, you need to be able to do a lot of computation very quickly because yeah. you have one day to figure out how much it's worth and then it's kind of obsolete information. Um, so there was interest in, in doing high-performance functional programming and um, and that was kind of as much of a plan as there were. And then I got involved as... Uh, I was a TA in a compiler course of my department and one of the... Uh, teachers was involved in the Cyberfit project and he recruited students to try and work on a language that was supposed to be for GPU programming in a functional style. And I had been a TA in the course and I, I didn't like the way he had designed the compiler. Um, mm. So I wanted to show him a better way of doing it. So I took his very early draft of a syntax tree and rewrote it and made it better. And then I just kind of went on from there in my free time and created a very small compiler to generate sequential code. It wasn't very fancy. And then he hired me as a student programmer and eventually as a PhD student. 
But like, what kind of, what does the average user use it for? Like, did it end up being used in the use case you thought it was going to be used for with banks or did like... I don't think there are any actual banks use it because, and that's also not really, we need to really expect that banks are conservative and it's a research project. It's not supposed to be a product. But Fuda was um, kind of by accident designed to be really good at uh, Monte Carlo simulations. And it is still used for that by some Mm. people. But I would say the average user of Fuda is either a student who's been forced to use it for a project (laughs) or an independent researcher who is trying to investigate some new kind of model where, sure, they could write up in Haskell, but then they would never be able to validate their model because it would run too slow. And the model is too unusual to easily express in, um, in TensorFlow or with raw uh, Kubla's primitives like GPU, linear algebra functions. So Fuda is a really nice compromise where you have a lot of flexibility to just change things and try things out, but it still runs pretty fast on yeah. GPUs or on multi-core CPUs and so on. So how do you um, approach making design decisions for uh, the language that you're working on now or like languages you worked on in the past? You mentioned that the the original spec had a, a compiler design that you didn't think was all that efficient, right? So you chose a different design. Like how, how do you approach that decision-making process? Um, so Fuda has actually changed a bit in, in superficial um, terms a lot since it started. It started out being a very crude first-order language that kind of resembled a standard ML a little bit, but it had parentheses for application and so on. It was kind of nasty. It was designed by my former advisor, who is an excellent compiler engineer, but his, pre- his previous life was writing Fortran compilers in C++. Nice. So his sense of aesthetics <laughs> are kind of... <laughs> I, we disagree <laughs> on certain points. So gradually the language became what it is now, which is more Haskell-like or more classically lambda calculus style. Okay. Um, and usually the way, since we don't do try to innovate that much in language design, I, we mostly just use the language a little bit and then we said, well, this sucks. This looks really ugly. Can't we do better? And then we just looked at um, mainstream languages and for us Haskell is mainstream that, uh, and, and, we fig- and we just looked at, well, can we do better inspired by these languages? So we didn't actually inno- innovate a lot. We mostly just copied from other languages. And I think, that's actually a good way of designing a language because the, the design space is enormous and yeah. the vast majority of, of design decisions are terrible or have terrible interactions with other design decisions. So innovating, actually doing something completely novel is really dangerous unless the novelty is exactly what you're going for. Yeah. So in many cases, so things like the syntax and the type system and so on, that wasn't really what we were trying to innovate on, at least not initially. So we just looked around for things that people had already tried and used for decades, and we knew what worked and what didn't. And then we, we took it, maybe tweaked it a little bit because existing languages have things that 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 have some flaws because they weren't realized initially, and, and they can change it because of backwards compatibility. But then we can tweak them a little bit. But we intentionally tried not to uh, to innovate too much in areas outside of our core competency. I've heard some variation on this advice from several people so far. Pick something you like in another language and copy the implementation to start because figuring out all the edge cases from scratch is really hard. And for the most part, it has been advice that I have followed. But the problem with modular systems is that even after reading a bunch of arguments about it, it just seems easy, right? Like, I'm sure if you want to do something with object inheritance and complex namespaces, it's harder. But at the end of the day, isn't it just importing code from another file into your program? 
I know the complications must be there, but I can't really see them for myself. The debate comes down to this. You can do imports using file path strings. Maybe just the file name if the main file and the code being imported are in the same directory. Or a relative path using dots and slashes to define where in the file system tree the code to import actually lives. Or you could do something more sophisticated where the module location is defined relative to something other than the file where the import is taking place, perhaps the application root directory. Obviously, most mature general purpose programming languages use the second approach, but I would prefer the simplicity of the first approach, to be honest. Um, from my vantage point, um, being able to split uh, a system specification into smaller parts means you get to reuse those parts and, and build like progressively more complex systems um, that are in easily digestible chunks. Um, so I've been trying to figure out exactly like what is the lay of the land on on this and like how what are they where are the complications and that's how I came across the stuff that that you had been writing about your own journey through this which I found um, really easy to read and compelling which I do not necessarily find to be the case about uh, programming language design writing so I'm interested in hearing more about like how you came to the decision you did and like why. Um, people look at that more simple uh, file import pattern and go, oh no, but when you get to larger programs, that's a disaster, so don't do that. Yes, so um, perhaps we should clarify by what we mean by module system, because mm. there's actually two distinct things here. One is um, modules as a thing that allows us to separate a program into multiple files, which yeah. of course both desirable and probably also necessary. And then there's an orthogonal concept, which is about how you can structure your program in terms of namespaces um, and also more advanced modular features. But, but namespaces are probably what most people associate with, with modular systems. Yeah. And these so are orthogonal. For a quick question, is there an actual specific term for one versus the other, or is it literally that it is the same term? Because this is no. this is the, I've had this conversation now multiple times where I'm like, how do I build a module system? And everyone's like, well, what do you mean by module system? Yes, no, I have actually been thinking about that ever since you invited me to this interview. And unfortunately, there is no term for splitting things into files, at least not academically. Okay, good. I think, I think it's because acad academics consider it that would be a boring problem or haven't discovered why it might be interesting. So in in, uh, in ML, they call it, they have something called the basis system, which does this, but it's, I think that's a very ML-specific term. And it's, mm -hmm. I would say it's not more of one of the more successful parts of the design. So let's ignore that. Um, but I think it's because you can always take a program written within multiple files and then just concatenate them and pretend them that was the program all along. True. Uh, okay. And of course, that's not practical, but, um, but that's a separate thing. Yeah. Okay, um, but so there are these two things, and they're of course related in most languages. And in many languages, you only have file the file division. That also is also the unit of modules. And like I think Java, well, okay, so Java is, is complicated because you have the this, this, this split into files, which I think is called called packages in Java. Mm -hmm. But then classes in Java also behave a lot like modules because they each encapsulate a namespace to prevent names from clashing, and they can do they do access control uh, on, on names. So that's a bit like like modules. So um, in FUDAC, what we have is, of course, an ML-style module system. It's taken almost verbatim from standard ML with some with a few extensions, in particular in syntax improvement. And um, that is a very odd module system. So in ML, uh, ML doesn't talk about files at all. 
So the module system is built with the assumption that your program is just one big file. Mm-hmm. And then the module system can do the usual stuff. You can you can create a module, and you can have definitions inside of that module. And then whenever you want to access one of those definitions, you have to prefix them with a module name, just a usual namespacing thing that you would have in any other language. But then ML also adds, um, adds signatures, which allows you to say, I have this module, and this module implements this signature. And then you can only access those parts of the module that are defined in the signature. So that, that allows you to hide names and make types um, abstract. That's how we do information hiding. Okay, in so like public-private, and you have to export it, essentially. Yeah, yeah, oh, ex- oh, yes, yeah, kind of, except that it's kind of separated from the module. Uh, so modules and, and signatures are separate, mm-hmm. and you can have multiple modules that implement the same signature. So it's kind of like uh-huh. interfaces and, uh, okay. and classes, but but you can't instantiate a module. It doesn't make any sense. Um, it's also a little bit like header files in C and implementation files, although, you know, of course, in C is a, is a mess for other reasons. Um <laughs> But then ML goes even further, and they add this notion of uh, of functors or parametric modules, um, which is kind of like a function at the module level, where you can say, if you give me a module that implements this signature, then I will give you back a module that implements this other signature. So, for example, if you give me a module that that implements a signature for numbers, then I will give you back a module that implements various uh, linear algebra operations on arrays that contain that kind of numbers. So that's kind of a, a way of doing generic programming at the module level that, that ML pioneered in the 70s and 80s. And, and that is, um, is an aspect of ML that hasn't really been imitated in many other places because it is kind of a complicated system. Mm. Um, and many other languages do this with uh, type classes or traits instead. So what are, the, what are these kind of constructs prevent because like so if we we have our module system that just concatenates multiple files together and treats it like that that's very easy for me to understand why that could potentially go wrong you have namespace issues like right off the bat right but you could like sort of um create a a map that broke down namespaces into scopes really easily and then like do that and that seems to me to be like not a super hard thing to do so why do these why does it seem to have more complexity than that or do we just refer to it with fancy terms that make it sound like it has more complexity than that but ultimately that's all that's going on no i mean the main reason why we like this idea of splitting things into files is to is to enable separate compilation uh, mm-hmm. the name thing i think is easy to solve technically you can just tag everything with a unique identifier and then with some extra simple tables you can handle that easily enough but but separate compilation is of course critical for any large program. You don't actually want to recompile everything all the time. Hmm. And files are a very natural notion, a very natural um, um, uh, unit of, uh, of splitting compilation into. So every source file becomes an object file or a class file or whatever. And then only when you change the source file, you have to change the object file or regenerate the object file. And you can combine, combine them all at the end to get your program. Hmm. And that works. And, and I think almost all languages work that way, even if they're not if you try to hide it. So that, that, that multiple, this, this idea of just concatenating all the files, there, there are two ways of doing it. In the ML style of doing it, sure, conceptually, you are concatenating all of the files, but they must still all individually type check and pass check and all this uh, on their own before the compiler starts putting them together and then doing code generation or, or whatnot. Whereas in C, this uh, concatenation of files really is just inserting the contents of the header file or whatever else you can include Anything you want doesn't have to be a header file, and just putting it in where the include was. If you include the same file multiple times, 
and you get multiple copies of the file. Uh, <laughs> and you have to take precautions to avoid that with Pragmas or, or, or the uh, if not def trick that is, is uh, ever present in, in, in C code. Um, and then only after all of that inclusion has been done by the preprocessor does the C parser even get to run. So you can kind of have a, have files that look uh, syntactically incorrect, but then after uh, all of the inclusion is done, they are suddenly type uh, suddenly syntax correct. Okay, so that makes sense. Separate compilation and figuring out when the parsing and type checking happens. I'm beginning to feel more comfortable with this now. I hate um, working in languages that have confusing import paths schemes. Like this is my number one biggest, uh, I am annoyed by the way you do this in this language. Like first uh, learning a new language thing is not being able to figure out like knowing where the file is on the computer and not being able to figure out how to get it to import things correctly. So like yeah. my gut instinct is here, here is to just make it that people can go like dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, here's where my file is. Like, please import this file, right? Like that that to yes. me is the easiest and most intuitive thing. And the, the feedback I keep getting in this very cryptic fashion is, but if you do that, people can't write large programs easily. And like to, for the life of me, I do not understand why people believe that to be the case. Like why it would make a difference, right? I, I feel like yeah. it's just an interface versus like, uh, I, I don't know why I get that feedback. So I was interested in your perspective, having like also made a decision from my understanding to go in the, the dot dot slash method versus yes. confusing uh, import paths. I, well, I agree with your initial analysis. Um, I think no one enjoys learning about import behavior. Yeah. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the reason I actually not I, so when I when when we initially in Fuda designed the file include mechanism, and again that was one of those things where we really had no ambition to improve on the state of the art. This was not our research problem. We just needed something so we could have two files in one program. Um, so we looked at various ways of doing it, and initially we did something like, uh, Python-like, where you write the name as a kind of a variable name, and then with dots, and then that gets translated into a file name by some built-in rules. Mm-hmm. And and eventually, just we just looked at it and said, why isn't this just a string literal giving the file name? Well, I mean, that it is a file at the end. I was trying to hide it, and there are languages or have been languages that that run in more advanced settings where you don't have files. I mean, yeah. image-based systems like Smalltalk or Lisp machines or um, or Unison, for a much newer example, that are trying to innovate and say, well, what if we didn't have files in our language? And, and that's cool, and I think it's very worthwhile research. But unless that's what you're doing, don't hide the files. I mean, you, there are files there. People are going to be frustrated if they can't just access them. Um, and then, of course, maybe in 10 years, when we're all running on the Unison VM, maybe I'll come with another syntax so we can import some object storage based on the content-based hashing or whatever. But for now, files are fine. Yeah. Um, so the reason why I think people suspect it won't scale is that um, if you're an extremist about it, like I am in Fudak, the file name is relative to the importing file. So that means when you move files around, you may need yeah. to change their, in, their import um, strings to reflect where the files are importing are now located relative to the importing file. Right. And I guess people think that will be too much of a bother. Um, well, first, I think it's pretty easy to automate because that is just you can you can even you can write quick scripts to fix this just based on your understanding of hierarchical file systems, which are pretty universally understood by any by every programmer. And second, if you are, 
if you really have tons of imports in every file, like dozens, which you might in a very large system. Um, Foodark is for small programs, so we don't have that, but I, I concede that might happen. Then I think you can address that if as long as you have a nice mechanism for re-exporting multiple files from one file. Mm-hmm. Like what uh, we call them open imports. So that's, and I guess other languages have, might have other names for it. Um, and if you can do that, then you can just have one file that includes, that is in a, some some single known location that includes a bunch of other files based on that location. And that's the single file that that is included by all the others. And uh, and that means you have less to update when you when you move stuff around. Um, but I don't know if it's really that common to constantly just move files around and modify include statements all the time. I, I I've never worked on truly enormous systems, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking out of ignorance here, but I, I can't believe it's that big of a problem. Um, I mean, like uh, I think it might. I also don't know how often people just move stuff around, right? Like, uh, I, I spend a, a lot of time professionally working on um, the maintenance of uh, old systems, and generally speaking, getting anybody to do any kind of uh, rearchitecting or, or redoing of code that's already on a file somewhere is just uh, pulling teeth. So I, I have a hard time believing that people just arbitrarily move, rearrange their files on a, a regular basis. But I also, I'm not sure that you don't end up in the same problem when you're using a more complicated like import uh, path syntax and also moving, right? I'm not sure. It's not clear to me that 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 problem is not also a problem when, when you have a more complicated import file import scheme. Uh, Another reason that people think it might not scale is because of what it looks like. Um, So, when you design a language, you kind of you're probably usually designing a language that is better at solving some specific problem, and probably you are to some extent motivated to designing a language that looks a lot like the languages that are already solving roughly that problem. Mm-hmm. Of course, you will try to do it better. And um, if you think about languages that use file names to import other files, then you then it's less languages like PHP and uh, shell scripts, and to an extent C, where it is also a little bit messy. Um, whereas languages that um, that are what we that we acknowledge as more well-designed, like Java or Haskell. Um, they use a more abstract notion. They use uh, package names or module names that which are translated to files eventually with some mechanism. But but they don't just you don't just put a string literal there. So you end up thinking that well-designed languages they don't refer to files. Hmm. But I don't think the problem with PHP is that you refer to files. <laughs> um, so, Certainly not the largest problem with PHP. So, so the, the, the problem with in PHP and shell script is that when you include other files. Sure, you can put a string literal there, but you can also put a piece of code that just dynamically computes a file name for including. And that's, of course, madness. Yeah. Then, that's, then you cannot analyze it statically. But, uh, and in, in Fudag, you put a string literal in, in the import statement, and, and that is syntactically a literal. It cannot be an expression. So it, it might look like it's the same thing as in PHP, but it isn't. It's, it's, there's full static knowledge. There's yeah. nothing fancy going on. You cannot do a dynamic import or anything like that. So this is going to be the last episode for a while. I've made some design decisions that I feel really good about, but it's clear that the only way to validate them is to write code and try things out. I'll be back in a couple of months to let you know how that went and do some research into optimizing the compiler. But really, I just need to be heads down, hands on a keyboard for a while on this. If you want to track my progress and maybe send me a pull request to correct all my stupid mistakes, I'm pushing code to a repo under the GitHub org named Faultlang. 
If you'd prefer a less intimidating way to participate in the development of my fledgling language, I got one additional great piece of advice from Professor Hendrickson. Oh, and another piece of advice, uh, find a cute animal mascot for your language. I know. <laughs> I've been really thinking about that. <laughs> thinking very hard about a, that. My food art cup here that one of the PhD, our PhD students did. Is it? With a hedgehog. Oh, it's a hedgehog. I was like, I first thought it was a monkey. And then I was like, no, it looks like a hedgehog. This is a little, like... <laughs> It is a hedgehog. Ah, cute. Yeah, I know. I have to figure out what our cute animal mascot is going to be because that's really it's really critical to a language's success or failure is the ability to have an attractive logo and a cute mascot. You've been listening to Marian Writes Programming Language. A transcript of this in every episode is available on the dev community. Just go to dev.2 slash belmar. There's also a fair amount of bonus content available to supporters, including the full interviews with the guests from this week. Here's a preview. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that doesn't sound too pure to me. <laughs> I, I mean, as soon as IO comes into the picture, it becomes very difficult to maintain like pure functions, right? Right, and then you can kind of say, oh, but it's still pure because it's actually a mo- you use Monad, so you're not actually writing an impure program. You're writing a pure program that generates an impure sequence of statements. Yeah, okay, sure, but... Oh, Haskell people. Yes, <laughs> semantically, that's true, pedantically, but I mean, you can also look at C that way. It's not a very useful way.